peace and joy. Therefore, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into, into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because um, persevere, sorry, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Death through Adam, life through Christ. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for it, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that come from the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provisions of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, Just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man and many were made man and the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that 
just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And may God add his blessing to this reading. Thank you, Flora. Good morning, everybody. Um, if you're our guest today and you haven't been here before, my name's Les. Um, Paul, who's our minister, uh, went down to Melbourne to watch some kind of game where they boot a ball around, and I don't know, I don't know, it doesn't make any sense to me, but anyway, that's where he is, um, and so he'll be back next week, but um, we've been looking through the whole book of Romans, and we're up to the fifth chapter um, that Flora just read for us, thank you Flora, um, and so yeah, that's what we're going to look at, I'm going to pray that God would help us to understand it, because I know that there's a lot of confusing parts in there, but uh, hopefully we'll make sense of them. Heavenly Father, your grace that you show us is amazing. And Lord, even to call it amazing, Lord, doesn't, doesn't fully express what it is. And Lord, we just ask that your spirit, Lord, in our hearts, Lord, as we look at your word, Lord, would help us to express it. Lord, help us to understand it. Help us to take hold of it as it's, as it's clearly um, and, and sometimes not so clearly put in this passage. Lord, we just pray for the, um, yeah, Lord, the parts of this that are hard to understand that we would be able to concentrate for the next 20 minutes or so and that we'd be able to work and, Lord, that we'd be able to understand what's being said here. But, Lord, that most of all, Lord, we'd see the impact on, on who we are and how, how we fit into this passage and, Lord, how this passage, Lord, fits into our lives. So we just pray that by your Spirit, and, Lord, through what I say now, Lord, that that would happen. In Jesus' name, amen. When something's new, that's when we get excited. We can't help get excited about something new. We often get excited just in the morning because it's a new day. Um, Christmas presents. Christmas time's exciting because of the anticipation of the new thing that you're going to get, even if it's secondhand, which... You know, you might feel a little bit ripped off, but it's still something that you didn't have before. So it's exciting. We consider it a a, a positive character trait. If you're the kind of person that, you know, you like to try something new, it's something that we want to be. We want to be people that like things that new. And and one thing that I've noticed more and more recently, and maybe I'm getting a little bit clucky, but babies are exciting because they're new little people and you go and you pinch their fingers and I'm sure they don't like it but you marvel at just how little they are and, and it's exciting because they're new. This passage is about newness. It's about being made new. It's about the new standing that we have with God, the new position that we have. It's about how as individuals we've been reconciled to God. We're being it's, and it's not just about us as individuals, but it's about how collectively we've been made part of the many, his new people under Jesus. So far in Romans, whether you've been here to hear the sermons or not, what we've learned is basically that without Jesus, we're in a completely hopeless situation. It says that we've been given over to our sinful natures and desires, and everyone's alike in that they're under judgment from God for it. But, but we've also learnt that out of God's deep, deep loving character, he's, he's justified us and freely gives us 
a thing called grace. He's made righteousness, the, the acceptance that we need, he's made that achievable for us. And it's made achievable through having faith in Jesus. It's made available through having Jesus live the life that we couldn't live for ourselves and die the death that we deserve to die, but he does it in our place. He's made faith the means by which we're made right. He's taken the concept of good deeds and any, any good that we might have out of the equation as to whether we're right with God or not. He sums this up in the very first verse of our passage. It says, Therefore, given all that stuff that he's already taught us, since we have been justified by faith. That's what that phrase means, to be justified by faith. No other way. It's only through faith in Jesus and what he's done we now have a right standing with God. To be justified means that you're made to measure up. If we were to put on a graph, imagine that we charted a graph of how good we are or aren't. But, you know, we'd come across and there'd be us and we'd be well short of the line and then there'd be other people. You know, you could think we could all plot out, but we'd all be short of the line, the standard. And yet we put Jesus on there and he's right up there. He's perfect. And, and to be justified means that Jesus gives us his score. He takes us up to where we need to be. It's like we've sat an exam paper on holiness and we've all failed, but Jesus has scored 100% and then he's gone and he's switched our papers and put our name on it. That's what it means to be justified. Absolutely nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to give us a right standing with God. It's all done by Jesus. It does heaps for us that's what paul goes on to say he says therefore now you've been justified it does all this other stuff that's what the next five or six verses are about the rest of verse one shows that not since you've been justified you're now at peace with god have a look in verse one we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ verse two shows us that we're now in his grace that is that we're considered by God continually holy, even when we fall short, even when we stuff up and sin. We're in this grace. It's a continual thing. We're given the hope of the glory of God, it says. That is, that beyond this life, there is for us a full revealing of God's glory. And we know from other parts of the Bible that this is eternal and it's peaceful. And it's fully satisfying to who we are as who God has created us to be. Verse 3 says, since we've been justified, that we now have, verse 3, hope in suffering. Everyone suffers in life in some way. But Paul is saying that in this new life that you've been given, since you've been justified, you've now got an ability to persevere through the suffering, to to persevere through it and even to turn it into something that actually gives us hope. He says that our character's changed as this happens. We have a character of hopelessness made into a character of hope. Our hope's transformed from being a hope that says the world will fulfill us in some way, which it won't, into a hope that God alone 
will and can and will fulfill us. It's like it's often been said that inside every person there's a, there's a God-shaped hole that only he can fill. Since we've been justified, God has filled that hole. Verse 5 shows us, if you have a look, that this hope that we're given, it doesn't disappoint us. The hope of the hope of there never being another natural disaster, the hope of you know all our family growing up healthy, the hope of anything that you might put your hope in other than Jesus in this world, they disappoint. You won't find fulfillment there. I won't find fulfillment there. No one finds fulfillment there. But the hope that comes through being justified, the hope that comes from being made right by Jesus, doesn't disappoint. Can you feel the passion that Paul's putting into this? It does not disappoint. It can't disappoint. It can't fail. It's fail-safe. You know the feeling that you have at the shops and you go along and you find the product that you've just been waiting to find, the product that's just going to do that thing that you want it to do. Like you've got a big stain on your carpet and you've just been down the big aisle where there's about a thousand different versions of the stain remover that you can buy and you find the one and this one's going to take that stain out and you get home and you pour it all over there and you scrub it and you kind of look at the directions and think, oh, that's rubbish, I'll know what to do, maybe that's just a male thing. But you get there and, you, and it still doesn't take the stain out, it disappoints. Jesus is the opposite, it does not disappoint, it works every time. The hope that we have in Jesus is real, it's not an empty promise. To be justified gives our life all those things from verse 1 to 5. To be justified gives us all those things. It gives us, finally, the newness of life that we need to be a child of God. Verse 5 climaxes. It's like a big crescendo, if you know about music. It climaxes with the truth that God himself, the Holy Spirit, will live in us. Just think about how big that is. Think about what we've learned in Romans. In verse chapter 1, verse 18, it says that all humans suppress the truth of God because they're wicked. Because they're wicked. It says in verse uh, ch- 21 of chapter 1 that the fact that we knew God, we ignored that fact. We ignored him. We became fools and invented fake gods that we'd serve instead. If you look back at chapter 3 and you look at verses 10 to 18, it says basically that in every possible way, every way that's possible for us to turn our back on God, we have. And in those people, the Holy Spirit, God himself, comes and lives. That's what it is to be justified by God. That's what it is to be made right by God. That's the power of being justified. It's being made new. The old has gone, the new has come. That's how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians. It says in Ezekiel that the heart of stone that we had is gone and that we get this heart of flesh that's stuck in you and it's pumping again. We're alive again in Jesus. It says, Jesus explains it in in John chapter 3, that we're born again. Not by going back up into our mother, Nicodemus gets confused, but by being born again of what Jesus has done. 
Because Jesus has washed us clean. God the Spirit makes his home inside of us. That's how clean we've been made. That we're now a suitable place for God who is perfect to live. I mean, is that amazing or what? That we're now taken from from having turned our back on God in every possible way to being now a place that's suitable for God to live inside of us. That, it's, just, it's incredible to think that we've been justified that much. That we're now taken to that point where God can live in us. Verse 6 to 8, Paul explains it with an illustration. It says here in 6 to 8, You see, at just the right time, when we're still completely powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How great is Jesus' love that while we were still sinners, he died for us, that he was willing to die for us when we least deserved it. You know, you might die for someone who you think deserves it. You might put your life at risk for someone that you think might deserve it, for someone that you love deeply. But that wasn't us with God. We're the opposite of that, yet he still does it. He goes there. Not because we were beautiful, not because we deserved it. We didn't deserve it in any way. It's despite of what we were. It's despite of everything that Paul spells out in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20. It's in spite of that that Jesus comes and justifies us. And so now that Paul explains what it is to be justified... He goes on to explain that it's not just that, but it's that we're also reconciled. Basically, being justified has just brought us up to the measure, brought us up to the point where we're now acceptable to God and he doesn't have to punish us anymore. But God doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with just you know, letting us avoid hell or letting us avoid punishment in any way. He actually then takes us now that we're justified and he reconciles us to himself. He wants relationship with us. He wants restored, reconciled relationship. It's not just like a legal position, but now a living relationship. This is the first time in Romans, if you look at it closely, that Paul, St. Paul, the writer of this, moves from language where he's talking about just what what legally is done or forensically God has done in our lives to going on and talking about the relationship. Verse 10 is really clear that at one stage we were God's enemies. That's a good description, good summary of what we were. To be an enemy of God isn't good. You don't stand a chance. But verse 9 shows us that we're saved from that wrath. We're not enemies anymore. But not only are we no longer enemies, not just merely not enemies, but we're also now made his friends. It says in verse 11, Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's an amazing privilege to be made friends with God again. That's the clear bit. 
The next section, verses 12 to, to 21, is a little bit more confusing. And what's going on in this part is it's like Paul's setting up two pictures of what we were and what we are now. A bit like he's done. If you think through the first part of the book, he sets up who we were and now he sets up who we've been made. And he does it to show the contrast between it. I'll just use this little illustration. If you flick one across and one more, there's a house, okay? You might be able to tell me a few things about the house. I'm going to have to look around. But you might be able to tell, well, that house has one door, one window, three bricks. I don't know how it's holding up with only three bricks, but it's got a red roof, a blue chimney, and green grass, okay? There's a few things that you can say about it. But if we go and we get another house, oh, look at that. Now you can compare the two. And if you're, not, you're not just looking at one anymore. So you're now telling the difference between the two. Okay, now we're not talking about houses, but what, Jesus, or what Paul does in this next part is kind of sets up two different pictures. He sets up a picture of what we're like under Adam, Adam being the first man, and then what we're like under Jesus. And by comparing the two, he actually draws out how rich and how great Jesus is and his work in our life. See, Paul has painted the picture of our sinfulness in the early part of this letter with the purpose of helping us to understand just how amazing Jesus is. He shows us what it means to be under the headship, if you like, of Adam, that we are in our sinfulness. And he does this to then show us what it means to be under the new headship of Jesus. See, Paul starts in verse 12 by tracing the, the, the domino effect of Adam's sin. Have a look there. It says, first of all, that sin enters the world through Adam. And then because of that, that's the first domino over, hits the next one. Death then enters through sin. And the next domino falls. And then death just comes to all. And it's that effect. It's that domino effect that everything is, is affected by this. Adam wasn't sinful when God made him. Paul doesn't tell us in this part where sin originates from, and that's another study that we're not going to look into. But he shows us the effect and how it spread through the world. Worse than things like the plague or the AIDS virus or the swine flu, which actually wasn't that bad in the end, but anyway, this problem of sin, it takes out everybody. You can't avoid this. And Paul treats Adam like this representative head okay, of all the people that have fallen under this. Genesis tells us the story of Adam's rebellion. If you look in chapter 3 of Genesis, you'll see the story and we learn it from the age of children that, that they were in the garden and it was perfect and God had only asked them that they didn't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and they rebelled against God. They doubted that he knew what was right, and they did their own thing. Basically, what it means to be under the headship of Adam is that although we don't go around eating from fruit trees that we shouldn't, we all have that rebel attitude in us. We all rebel in the same way. It's, it's like we've got a sin bias. If you know the game of lawn bowls, um, I used to play lawn bowls when I was younger, but I... Um, I, the, the, old, the older blokes wouldn't play with me anymore because I was a bit too flatulent when I bent over. But anyway, 
If you know the game of lawn bowls, which I've got enough time to learn it, a lawn bowl has a bias. And what it will do is it will draw the bowl toward the bias. And if you do it wrong and you end up, you end up hitting someone else's bowls on the other side of the green. But basically, we inherit from Adam a bias, a bias towards sin. We can't, we can't just go along straight the way that we need to. We can't live the perfect life because we have this bias that just takes us away from God. That's what we've inherited. Now, the most confusing part, that's what verse 12 says, but the most confusing part comes in these next two verses, 13 to 14. I'll just read them for you again. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking the command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Um, Paul is halfway through his sentence, really. Verse 12, if you look at it, it's like he's halfway through his sentence and then he stops and then he says these two verses, or these two verses are here. And what he's actually doing is anticipating an objection that the readers might have. The objection basically is, what about the law? What about the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses? If Adam sinned, well, yeah, we can see that Adam sinned because he rejected that one instruction that God gave him. But then God doesn't give instructions again till we get to Moses. And there's, you know, what about all the people that lived in, in that time, Paul? What about them? That's the objection that Paul's hearing in his head. Isn't, isn't the Ten Commandments, aren't those what we sin against? Isn't that when God let us know what his standard was? Until then, surely, God, we can't be judged because we don't actually... Can you kind of understand the argument that Paul's answering here? Well, in verse 13, that's what he says. For before the law was given, sin was still in the world, he says. But sin is not taken into account where there is no law. How can it work without the law? And Paul answers it quite clearly in verse 14. Nevertheless... Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Death reigned in that time. There's your proof. There's your proof that it was still sinfulness. Even though God hadn't said clearly what it was to reject him, there's still proof that that's what people were doing because people still died. Now, that should change. This actually has an implication for us. It changes how we view the law. See... Some people will tell you that the Ten Commandments are how you should live your life. Some people will even go so far as to say that that's how you're right with God. And we know that that's not true. But Paul makes it really clear what the law of Moses is about, what the Ten Commandments are about and all the other laws that come out of them. They are there as a spotlight, a spotlight on you and your life, on me and my life. They're like they shine up the sin in our life. It's like the Ten Commandments are ten different coloured highlighters, like texture highlighters. And they come in and they colour the areas of your life that don't meet up. And when you think of them like that and when you see them like that, you'll actually realise that we're covered. 
We're, we're like walking rainbows. We're covered in all these highlighters just because they show up how sinful we really are. That's what Paul's trying to say there. Paul's saying, well, no, just because they didn't have the commandments, just because those people didn't know, there's no excuse and death still reigned. But for us, we're on the right side of it and we know what they are. So now that that question is answered, that Paul kind of sidetracks on, Paul wants to show just how much Jesus and Adam contrast. We'll have a look at verse 15 to 17 again. The gift of, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, that's Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift of that grace come by the one man, Jesus? Sorry, by the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ? See, what Adam has done, the trespass, well, that leads to death. What Jesus has done shown grace, that leads to life. They're the opposite. And when you put them up together, you can see how big a deal it is. That's what the gift is. Adam's sin sets up a pattern, and it's a pattern of judgment. Jesus' gift sets up a different pattern, a pattern of many people being justified. Through Adam, death reigned over the whole world, but through Jesus... Jesus' grace, righteousness reigns over the many who are his people. So in the, in, if we think about the election that we've just had, and we've already talked about this a bit, no matter who ends up in government, no one won the election. No party can claim that they actually won. And a lot of the criticism is that the two parties were, were too alike anyway and, and not distinct enough from one another to give us a real choice. But the contrast here between Adam and Jesus is enormous. They're not anything alike. The, the pattern, the head being under either of them and what it results in for us as people, they're nothing alike. To be under Adam is judgment, is death. To be under Jesus is to receive grace to receive life. But now that Paul's contrasted the two, showed how different they are, Paul now compares them to one another. If you look at verse 18, it says that one trespass in Adam, well, that led to death. But one act of righteousness in Jesus leads to being made right. In verse 19, it's just one act of disobedience in Adam that many are made sinners. But in Jesus, it's one act of obedience. Him on the cross, the the many will be made righteous by that. That's That's what he's doing. He's comparing the two. Now, with all that said, that's really just the bare bones of this passage. That's how it works. But really, the flesh in this passage is is the concept of God's grace to us. 
lit in all the way through this passage is the word grace. And Paul's purpose in writing this is to really convey the wonder of Jesus' grace to us. If we just glance back at verses 1 and 2, it says there that we have peace with God. That's grace. We don't deserve to have peace with God. We now stand in grace. That means that although we're not perfect, God continually treats us like we are, especially when we stuff up. It says that in verse 20, he says that where sin increases, God's grace just increases even more. It'll expand to fit. If, if it's a balloon that we're filling up with our sin, it's never going to pop. That's how amazing Jesus' grace is. Now, in, verse, in chapter 6, which we're going to look at next week, Paul kind of answers the question, well, if that's the case, should we just keep stuffing sin in there and really... And, and you'll see that the answer is no, but that's for next week. But really he's saying the more that we stuff up, Jesus is so loving and so gracious towards us that his grace just increases all the more. What an amazing love that he has for us. Verse 3, go back there, shows us the hope that we have. And being given hope is an expression of God's grace. We do not deserve to have any hope in our sinfulness and in our wickedness and being under Adam, we do not deserve to have hope. But he gives it to us. Who else in the world that ha- who else in our world? Who do you know that's not a Christian that has hope that even in the even in the crummiest of circumstances, your God is going to bring something good out of that. How gracious is God towards us that he can even treat the the crummiest moments of our lives and bring it for good. It's It's an act of grace. When the evil in the world will be turned around and used by good by our powerful and glorious God. It's a hope that doesn't disappoint us. Our God, Jesus, lived, died and beat death. He was resurrected. He was made new. That's precisely why Paul mentions The Spirit in verse 8. It's an act of grace that we even have that Spirit. Chapter 8 of Romans, verse 11, Paul says that this is the Spirit. God the Spirit is what raised Jesus from the dead. If you've got that living in you, then you have the hope that when you die, you're not dead, but you are going to be raised in the same way that Jesus was. Perfect. That's living in you, and that is grace. You do not deserve that. I do not deserve that. But in grace, it's given to us. When you wake up in the morning, you know that because you belong to Jesus, who has beaten death, that even if the worst possible thing could happen to you in that day, you're still in God's grace. If if it's the worst possible thing and you die, then you will still live. You will still be his child. You've still been made new in him. You still will be new in him. That's God's grace in our lives, that we have that hope. God's grace means that we have a relationship with him. It would have been a loving thing for God to just justify us, to just let us avoid punishment, and that be the end of it. But in grace, he gives us relationship with him. 
God's gracious to us in that he doesn't just forgive us, but he gives us relationship as well. It's grace. We do not deserve it. As Paul is comparing and contrasting Jesus and Adam, it's really plain that what Jesus has done, he didn't have to do. It's an act of grace. Look at verse 15 one last time. The gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Paul wants you to know that we didn't deserve it, but that he still did it. That's what grace is. Verse 21 says, So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness. If something reigns, it's over everything. If grace reigns in your life, then there's nothing that's going to knock it down. It will reign over the sin in your life that still exists. It will continue to reign until you reach eternity. You are under a new head. You're on a new team in Jesus. It's an act of amazing grace. How great is the grace that Jesus has shown us. I really, really, through doing this, through looking at this, through even preaching this this morning, have just had my eyes opened up to how amazing God's grace is to us. I really do pray that it's something that that we just value, that we can see that this is better than anything that we can ever know. That God would treat us this way when he didn't have to. Let's thank him for it. Father, we praise you for your act of amazing grace, Lord, in Jesus, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we know that in our head, but we pray that we'd know that deeply in our heart. Lord, we can see how it works mechanically, how we can see how you're a substitute for what what we've done wrong and what we deserve to, to be punished by. But Lord, we pray that in our heart, Lord, we'd, we'd hold on to that, Lord, above any, anything else. Lord, we thank you that you showed us grace when you didn't have to. Lord, I just pray that we might, that we might live for you. That we might not, Lord, put you to the test or, or, or continue sinning just because we can, but Lord, that we would see your glory. Lord, now that we can. Lord, now that you've touched our lives through what Jesus has done. And Lord, that we might live for you with everything that we are. Lord, because your grace allows us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.